Hello everyone, welcome to Intimate Animation, brought to you by the online animation magazine Squiggly.com. This series covers animation that takes on adult themes of love, relationships, and sex. So steal yourself as there's some frank discussion ahead. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Intimate Animation. With myself, Ben Mitchell, joined by Laura Beth Cowley. How are you, Laura Beth? I'm good, thank you. We've been very busy, hence the kind of gap between episodes. We've been doing the marriage thing. Yeah, we got married. Yes, and you can tell from the joy in our voice. We're so tired. (laughs) We went over to New York uh, for our honeymoon, saw some sights, walked around, went outdoors, Mm. which was a bit of a palate cleanser. We did tourism. And how? And a very nice time we had, too. We got to finally meet our friend Signe Bauman, who was the uh, guest in episode two of this series of Intimate Animation, who's cracking on with her film My Love Affair with Marriage. It was wonderful to finally meet her in person. I've, I mean, we've been corresponding and interviewing and Skyping and stuff for years and years now, and uh, always had missed each other at festivals. Like, the one Annecy you and me weren't at in the last few years was the one that she was at. Always the way. Yeah. So yeah, we finally got to see her atelier, and uh, see uh, all the wonderful like processes her and her producer Sturgis uh, coming up with for this film. It's kind of cool. It's uh, like with the rocks in my pockets. It's a sort of mix of two D and papier mâché sort of physical sets, but they have all sorts of like really nifty old school camera rigs and techniques in store, and uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Also a massive studio. Can you imagine having a studio that size as a single, like an individual person in like London? In London? Yeah, no, I couldn't imagine that. Because New York is like the London, isn't it, of America, really? So that looks very cool. And uh, yeah, like I said, great to to meet her. She gave us a little tour of uh, the industry city in Brooklyn, which is very bristly. It sort of felt like home. If we were ever going to move to New York, I think we'd probably set up shop in Brooklyn. Oh, yeah. I think based on that little visit. So Signa was like the only, you know, dropping by her place, that was the only kind of animation-related errand. Um, and, well, it was just something we wanted to do, because... Uh, it was just to see Signa, really. Yeah, she's a lovely lady. One of the to... first things you and me kind of bonded over, I think, when we first met were some of her films. I knew that uh, we had a very sort of similar sense of humour from that. So there was a kind of, you know, it was a nice thing to do on our honeymoon. To and kind she's of, helped me out on, like, papers and... And presentations, presentations and things, I've yeah. given on like sex and animation in general, and of course, she's, just, she's in my book, Independent yeah. Animation, so, available online. And yeah, so yeah, other than that, animation wasn't really on the uh, the agenda. Um, I think we needed a bit of a break. That being said, us being who we are, we did stumble on some, yeah, animation tends to sniff us out wherever we go. Uh, well, the one thing that's always going to be consistent about us, if it isn't animation, it's going to be sex. And so, inevitably, um. <laughs> on the itinerary was uh, a visit to the New York Sex Museum, which I didn't know existed until you had... Uh, I, I have found all the sex museums there are in mm. the world. And um, we'll go to all of them, I We expect. will. One day, I will present a comprehensive list. The Amsterdam Sex Museum, which we went to last year. Now, that's an odd one. Because it's incredibly cheesy. There are animatronics, which is just, like, taggy. And like it's like a really kind of low rent Madame Tussauds thing, 
but also just like a lot of the exhibits and the way they're displayed are just very sort of corny and like cheeky and it's just very 80s slash 90s to have like an attraction that has animatronics on it that i also kind of miss I miss yeah. the, the era of animatronics that don't change at all and just get, like, slightly shitter year on year. Architecturally, I actually quite enjoyed it because the building, the Amsterdam Sex Museum, the building is kind of like a yeah. building you would think of in a dream. It's like an Escher painting. Yeah, it's a bit like... Like staircases you know how, like, that rooms, lead to rooms that don't make sense. Yeah, like when you kind of have a dream and it's like a familiar place but the dimensions are all wrong and the rooms connect in a different way, but they don't connect in a logical way. So you go down the stairs, but you look up and you see there's like a window, but into another room that you can't get to. You have to like, but you both went up the same staircase and hat. Somehow I'm on the other side. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how I got here. (laughs) David Bowie's walking upside down, (laughs) bouncing a ball. Whilst that's happening, there's also just a cock gyrating in front of us. So comparatively speaking, uh, the New York Sex Museum, which I don't believe has any real connection other than the word sex museum, is more of a kind of, like, not formal, but more kind of, like... Um, Considered. Yeah, there's sort of more of a kind of modern museum look to it. Um, like things are in cabinets rather than, like... Yeah, presented. sort of like backlit displays numbered with sort of... Informational Concise tags. descriptions of what you're looking at. And the animation side of things, sure enough... Uh, when we made it to the top floor, there were a couple of exhibits that I thought were quite interesting. Some animation stuff, or animation sort of related stuff in some instances that uh, I hadn't actually encountered before. And I do sort of wonder what the qualifiers were to include them in this particular museum. One was an illustrator called Polly Knorr, who uh, had a bunch of illustrations up. I just quite liked her illustration style. It's vaguely reminiscent of David Shrigley, I suppose. I've seen her stuff around a lot. Yeah. Like, it's, she's very popular. Yeah. But I've never... like you, you know when you just go, ah, that's a thing I should look up later, and then you just don't? Yeah. Hers is all that. Okay. NSFW Female Gaze was the name of that section of the museum. So we were looking at these illustrations, and I sort of thought to myself, oh, these would look quite nice animated. And sure enough, uh, it's already happened. She's done a couple of animation videos, or rather a guy called Andy Baker has, but using her illustrations and her designs and her overall style. And those have been quite nice to watch. If you want to watch something new, or well, you might have seen it already. Uh, one's a music video for, a, I think, an English band called Chelou, C-H-E-L-O-U. And the song is called Halfway to Nowhere. And this really does kind of remind me of the Chris Shepard, David Trigley music video. Uh, not music video, but uh, short film, Who I Am and What I Want. You know what it kind of reminds me from kind of an animation and colour palette point of view is Bojack. Oh yeah, I could see that It's a got bit. that kind of weird, not quite great perspective of human bodies. Like, it is technically fine, but it's a little off, like it's not perfect. Mm. But it's also not super cartoony and non-realistic. Yeah, I think if I'm, I think I prefer this animation to Bojack. It's a bit more fluid. Bojack's yeah. a little bit more puppetry tool looking. Yeah. I can sort of see what you mean. It's the weird ease on everything. Yeah, everything's. It's not quite. You wouldn't call it rubber hose, but it feels very sort of LSD-ish. It's, it's also a bit, a bit like that Big Mouth show we've been watching as well. It's that got that. It's that weird motion. The elements of that, yeah. So Andy Baker, uh, I think at the moment, is part of a collective or company or something called Friends Electric. Uh, you can find them at friendselectric.tv. And there was another one 
uh, which you've got up here. What's this? The Green Room? Yeah, there's another one called Triathlon. So yeah, Polly Nor, Very cool illustrator. And check out Andy Baker's stuff as well. If you like. Another one that completely wasn't on my radar. A relatively new film. I guess this would have come out around the time I was doing my MA. It says here it's 2008. A film called The Sex Life of Robots by a guy called Michael Sullivan. And the Sex Museum has a big part of the set, or perhaps a sort of specially made set, with a bunch of the puppets used in that film. It's quite funny. They're sort of arranged as though they're in like a theatre, and they're watching the film, which is being sort of projected on a small screen inside this little uh, case that's holding it all. It's a nice little idea to actually have the puppets watching the film. And then in a sort of back room, you can see two of the, uh, or maybe three of the puppets, uh, while the others are just watching this film. I was sort of surprised. We had a little look. Maybe you can punch it up again. I was surprised, actually, at how the puppets were made. It wasn't what I was expecting. Uh, this is what the museum sort of description is. Fashion dolls and figurines transformed into robotic actors in Michael Sullivan's pornographic stop animation film, The Sex Life of Robots. Sullivan, who has worked as an animator and prop fabricator for over 20 years, described the film as footage of every conceivable sperm transfer device that is performed by robot pornographers and their well-lubricated machines. Hmm. So that answers that question. Yeah. I haven't actually seen a version of the full film online. Maybe someone can help us out with that. There are a couple of documentaries or little vignettes on this guy sort of at work. If you look for Artist in Motion, The Sex Life of Robot, singular. But the one we found, we also found this one, Disinfo TV, The Sex Life of Robots, plural. The sound in this one is absolutely abysmal, but it's kind of an interesting look at how he puts the actual puppets together. Which I was sort of surprised at, having looked at them in the uh, display, I would have thought that they were actually metallic and sort of made from like little sort of metal components and sculpted elements. But they're actually, um, they're made from Barbie dolls, yeah. mainly. It looks like uh, Barbie dolls in the form of like grey milliput, mm. which is like an air drying compound, basically. They use it a lot in stop motion. You basically just ad libs on a Barbie. Yeah. So that it has, like, the body shape he wants, which is basically Florence's woman. Yeah. Shaves it, puts some new bits on it with Milliput, so he goes over the scalp and stuff so that it's nice and smooth. Gives them nipples. Gives mm. them rivets. So he's at a flea market or, like, something where he's just basically sort of going through, like, boxes of old naked Barbie dolls. Looking for ones for with joints. Yeah. Um, leaves the flea market with... Barbie doll, Barbie doll legs pockets. coming out of his... <laughs> Which I kind of feel like is a bit unnecessarily creepy. Yeah, he definitely has a certain, like, personal look to him that I think he's maybe playing up a bit in the kind of, like, collecting doll parts and taking them back to his... Yeah, it goes to his sort of studio or apartment, or possibly both, and it looks a bit like he's a hoarder to begin with, and then you see it's actually, like, a very densely packed studio. With puppets and parts and sets and... And essentially, the designs of the the robot characters are, are quite well done. I mean, some of them it's look a bit like the Iron Giant. Some of them look like um, a little bit like Bicentennial Man. Yeah, you know, they're um, very classical styles yeah. of robots. As he sort of scalps the Barbie doll, which is really weirdly. I just want to add the detail of it. it's an old Mulan Barbie doll from a Disney film. Ah, see, I would not have. Picked which up I one. just find really funny. <laughs> Did you own this particular Barbie doll? No. Yeah. 
but I just find it weird that I can tell. So, a little bit of Disney in there as well. So, I know, a film I'd never really uh, come across before. Here's a good or quote. a person. Or, yeah. I've never heard of this guy. And there's someone that spends an inordinate amount of time looking at, A, both stop-motion animators and people that use sex as subject matter. It's kind of weird that we never came across this guy. So there you go. The point for the New York Sex Museum. I'm not a writer at all, but uh, I wrote about the uh, the robots in a munitions factory, and I got fed up with it, and uh, I just thought, oh, we'll do a porno movie of robots, and that'll be that won't need any plot, you know. That's a good uh, that's a good loophole. This is Madame Robot's uh, artificial insemination machine, and uh, she has her her on lever, and then uh, her this sort of half android comes down, grabs her. And the cock isn't attached to him, but it comes comes out like that, back and forth. It's kind of a shame the actual animation is a bit choppy. It's not terrible at all, but it's just not... But then it can't be smooth, because they're not really built. Because he's using Barbies. Mm. Yeah. There's only so much he can really do. Like, I... Because the way he showed it is like he just adds stuff on top and then that's done. But he must involve some sort of rigging inside because they just wouldn't be able to stay upright. I mean, it reminds me of like old animation I would do with like my action figures. It's very like um, Robot Chicken-y. Yeah, although the Robot Chicken animation can be quite good, surprisingly. Like, I, But I once again, because they create puppets that... Yeah. Um, they create puppets. They really break them apart and completely... Re-put them back Which maybe so he does too. He just didn't go through that part of the process. But I quite like it because it does show, like he sort of talks about at one point the um, the reason why he went used porno as a subject matter is because it's kind of mechanical in its own sense. Like it, it's mm. just people without any real love or passion going at it, mm. and that's kind of what he represents in his own films. Yeah. Uh, but also the kind of hypnotic motion of mechanical things yeah. like they, mechanical things are very easy to be like the kind of things you sort of snigger at and go huh, look what that looks like yeah. kind of thing especially with things like pistons and the fallopian tombs kind of look like red dwarf another thing that was in the sex museum a sort of general history section it was hardcore a century and a half of obscene imagery obscene so they had like loads of things like french postcards and full penetration uh, you know those weird like peep show things where you paid like a penny and you look in and it's got like a naked oh. woman or like like an old version of a like flip a book stereogram yeah. yeah or a little flip book or something you know the mm. ones that flap down two bits see and you see her show off some ankle look at her funny little vagina there's so much pubic hair she may as well be wearing underwear <laughs> don't tell the missus there was the Display downstairs of the, um, like the sex, oh yeah, the Merkin, <laughs> but like the sex handbooks. And there were like three sex handbooks. One of them was, um, fellatio for wives and mistresses. And the other was p eating for everybody. <laughs> I was like, well, why is, <laughs> why is one fellatio? so much more elitist? I don't know. Oh, masturbation with style. <laughs> with a little hat. <laughs> they sound like magazines you'd get in a shop and they'd come with little toys. Maybe they did, by Grace M. from the Omega How-To series. I'm not entirely sure if they're still in business. Part of this exhibition. 
they had a segment from an old film that I had encountered before in a documentary um, about like adult animation from about I think it was around 2000 so a while ago and this is a film called Buried Treasure which uh, I remember being pretty unimpressed with at the time and curiously I don't think it's actually come up on this podcast it's like the first sex animation or one of the first documented sex animations it was like a kind of stag film its origin and, and intent was as a gift for Windsor Mackay. Uh, according to the plaque, Yay. and I won't read the whole thing because uh, you should visit the sex museum yourself, give them some love. Uh, the most polished of all cartoon stags, because the country's leading illustrators contributed to it as a birthday gift to Windsor Mackay, creator of the comic strip Little Nemo. Uh, first shown at a testimonial dinner for Mackay, it is still prized for its send up of the male sexual impulse. Here represented as a penis. No, no shit. Elsewhere, uh, I have this book, which in England is called Animation, the Global History. Uh, in America, I think it has a different title. I think it's called A New History of Animation. By Maureen Furness, there's a little notion here about it. There isn't a lot of, of writing on it. The Wikipedia entry for it only cites one book, which I don't think I still have if I ever actually tracked it down, called Forbidden Animation. This book, however, has a couple of lines on it. Probably made in New York during the late 1920s by artists from Fleischer, Paul Terry, and other studios, though the exact origins are not known. It tells the story of a man with a huge penis who witnesses creatures all around him having sex and goes out to find some of his own. It would not have been shown in normal theaters, probably limited to private screenings by someone with access to the print, which nowadays is everyone because, of course, it's on the internet. You can check it out if you like. It's not frightfully amusing. It's sort of like, oh, okay. They. Uh... I'm more just amazed that it was made as long ago as it was. Right. Because it's very of the time style animation. and But I'm just amazed that they would be as like outlandish as they would. I think it would have been rather scandalous. Yeah. Uh, I think, well, that's the thing. Like, whenever a new art form or new venture in technology or any kind of, like, great leap forward for culture and for mankind is introduced... I would give it maybe 20 minutes before someone finds a way of doodling a dick onto it. This breakthrough new technology could revolutionise the world. How can I f*** it? Exactly. So, uh, Ever Ready Heart On, which is the alternate title yeah. of uh, Buried Treasure. Ever Ready Heart On is the character who's the guy with the, the big dick, oh. basically putting it in everything. Uh, hilariously. Sometimes it's, it's something you really wouldn't want to put your penis in. Like, like a man. Well... To each their own. Or a donkey. Again, to each their own. I like the fact that that's the same in this film. So, actually, no, the donkey is more attractive. He doesn't run away. He's actually trying to fuck the donkey. That is another sign of, like, the times, I guess, is the idea that he, he thinks he's basically having sex with a woman who's, like, on the beach buried under the sand. But he's actually having sex with, I guess, her husband, who is under the sand completely. And then he emerges from the sand and, oh, no, my penis isn't in her at all. It's in this this fellow. Oh, my, what a blunder. Run and away. Then, uh, and then they run away. And so he's attached to the guy who's furious. Um, but that's kind of like presented as just as ignominious as f***ing an animal. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that definitely kind of shows its age. Yeah. So there's definitely a disparity between, you know, the era of now where we have films like Manivald and uh, films like that. 
I think the idea is that not a bunch of these animators worked on the whole thing together. They kind of treated it like a sort of exquisite corpse where, you know, one would do one segment and then they'd pass it on to the next person or studio mm. to do another segment. But no one ever really, I think, officially took credit for it. There was sort of speculation that, in the quote I just read, like Fleischer and uh, Paul Terry. According, again, to Wikipedia, in the 70s, there was some attribution introduced to George Starling and Walter Lance. Oh, Walter. Honestly. He's the guy who did Woody Woodpecker, for the record. Mm-hmm. There you go. So anyway, a little bit of animation culture. It's sort of worth, I guess, just sort of bringing up on this uh, podcast, just because we hadn't... Not my favorite of uh, that era of animation, but uh, a bit of fun for some, I suppose. So yes, thanks to the New York Sex Museum, we got a little bit of animation education insinuated into our honeymoon. Can't escape it. What else were we going to talk about? Oh yeah, Big Mouth. What do you think of Big Mouth? I'm really enjoying it. It's weird and really funny. I couldn't have had lower expectations. Yeah. And was quite pleasantly surprised. I mean, I think it's because the way it was written, it was like it made it sound like it was going to be like South Parky esque humor, but without the intelligence, more like South Park and its Family Guy. Yeah, which is what that sounds like the worst thing ever. That basis is what has produced so many dreadful shows, and in England especially when they've tried to do like adult sitcoms. Like, do you remember Full English? No, I well, me and Steve had a good rant about that one when it came out. I know it wasn't good. No, but this was a, a real sort of pleasant surprise. What really hit with me is, you know, one thing, and I've said this before, I think, to you, I've, I always found a little bit, like, frustrating about a show like The Inbetweeners was that it was a bunch of, like, 16 to 18-year-old boys as confounded and bamboozled by the opposite sex and sexual any kind of sexual interaction as a 12 or 13 year old would be. Yeah. And then it really did take quite a few people like telling me, no, that's actually what it was like for me at that age. And I didn't go to like a particularly advanced school of like, you've met my school friends. None yeah, of them are alpha males. Like, They're all like poshos. And- yeah. No one was getting like impregnated at 14. No, but there was definitely shenanigans. Yeah, yeah. And certainly, like, the awkwardness and the, the bumbling around that you saw in stuff like The Inbetweeners. I was like, well, yeah, I, I get that, but that was, like, when I was 12. That was when I was, you know... Yeah, I think it's the fact that, like, in Big Mouth, it's not about, like, them having... They haven't got to the stage yet where it's about them having sex. It's just about, like... It's the awkward fumbling through pre-adolescence. Puberty. Yeah. It's about puberty, really. Yeah. And that, I think, that felt like... And it's quite nice as well, because for a show that's, you know, for that audience... I don't know what that audience is, I'm just talking out my ass. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I assume it's for people more our age remembering than yeah. actual kids. Because I think that's it. It kind of presents itself, or the way that people wrote about it, I assume they never actually watched the show, made mm. it seem like it was going... Like I said, it was going to be like a South Park Family Guy-esque thing. Whereas, like you said, it's more for people a little bit older. It's more for, like emotionally prepared Rick and Morty fans. Like, it has a little bit more to it in terms of, like, it's not just all fart jokes, like it is in Family Guy. Yeah. But it's funny, and the thing I quite liked is that they gave as much attention to... Because it basically centres around two male characters who are friends and their their female friend who are all at different stages of puberty. 
and I quite like the fact that they give it equal amount of screen time to both the girl and the boys. Yeah. And they don't present them both as, like, equal. Well, there's two girls and two boys. Because there's the other girl Yeah, but the like... two boys are more central than the second girl. You reckon? Yeah, she's she's just there for him to have something else to focus on, really. I sort of got the impression that they were trying to bring her in more. Like, the, the girl who's a bit younger and a bit more sort of hapless... And there's a guy who's a but bit she, younger. But we than... haven't really had any time with her. No, I guess you know not I mean? to she's, the same she's extent. She's kind of just like, she's like that character in any kind of sitcom that's like there to be the centre of someone else, one of the other main characters' world. But I think some of the material involving that character has been really good. Oh, yeah, no, I, I'm not saying like, I don't like her a lot and she's yeah. not a big character in the show. She's just not a central character. Mm. It, the central characters are the two boys and that ginger girl. Yeah, and so I guess if you haven't seen this is a Netflix series, by the way. And uh, actually, I mean, sort of going back to South Park, what South Park did do rather well in its sort of heyday, it did some very like sex positive discussion points from you know I guess the perspective of you know two guys who would have been I guess in their early thirties around that time. That I think was when South Park kind of turned this corner and became this sort of social commentary show in a way. You had these shows about, you know, the the kids trying to embark on some kind of sexual misadventure but being way too young and, you know, the wisdom of Chef, you know, may he rest in peace, he would come in and say, no, children, you're not ready yet, you know. Or like, you know, the parents in an uproar because the teachers are teaching sexual education to the kids. But, you know, what happens if the teachers don't? teach sexual education to the kids, then the responsibility is on the parents, and the idea of that is way more horrifying. So stuff like that I thought was quite welcome at the time, certainly. Uh, and I think that this show, 10, 15 years later, kind of takes that and runs with it a bit. Uh, I think that there's a lot more candor. I can't think of anything else apart from South Park that would take that subject matter and put it in the mouths of preteens and very young teenagers. But that is, you know... That's how people talk. I yeah. mean, they do talk of it. Not necessarily more. with the same degree of yeah, like, they have a, fire. They have a very mature vocabulary, but yeah. like the emotions and the inability to deal with things and the way that they handle things. Like yeah. that bit with uh, the disco where he's like trying to wash his pants in the toilet and then the guy yeah. comes in and is like, why are you trying to wash them in the toilet? And it's like, I don't know, I just panicked. We're children. <laughs> yeah, he genuinely just is like, we're children, we're not meant to handle this. <laughs> and it also, it's one of the first shows in a long time that's actually made me proper laugh out loud. Yeah, there were like some that, pretty good. <laughs> like the bit with the um, at the Lady Liberty, where she's like, oh, when she's crying. Oh, oh no, you got your period. <laughs> oh, and I made you wear the white shorts. It's <laughs> <laughs> so, some good uh, period remorse. Yeah, humor. just all the <laughs> the memories. <laughs> And the animation as well of it is yeah. amazingly perfect. And the thing that really st- strikes the biggest chord is like the the two main characters who are kind of entering the the haze, the thick of pubescence. It's sort of manifested by these hormone monsters. So the guy has yeah. a, a hormone monster, and the girl has her own. The guys is kind of I don't know who does the voice of the guy, but he's a kind of Harvey Firestein esque like. Yeah, very kind of, you know... Um, Just do it! <laughs> take, taking the kid under his wing, 
in you know with these really really awful suggestions that and really even the are kids like oh that's a terrible idea but i'm gonna yeah, do it why did i think that you know why would i indulge that kind yeah. of horrific and there's like, oh yeah i remember that <laughs> like being like, that age and- like the emotional nice part of you being like oh god why would you do that to her but the uh but the, the yeah the side sort of, of need to kind of commit to anyway but what I really love is how then the female hormone monster is characterized. She's amazing. And it's literally the only time I've said this about anything. Maya Rudolph is very funny in this. <laughs> she really sinks her teeth into it. Yeah, but the differences really between the the way the female hormone monster is driven and what motivates her and is then so much more maniacal. Like yeah, the guy, but, the guy one, because you kind of get used to the guy one because the the girl side of it doesn't really come into it until like this third episode or second episode. yeah so you kind of get used to this and you're like oh god this character is awful and you get the woman one she's very alluring and stuff but she's like oh no she's just really super manipulative like every teenage girl yeah it's, it's, <laughs> like, it's awful and like you're gonna call your mother by her first name now like throw yourself onto the bed and cry so hard you can't make any noise <laughs> it's just like, yeah that sounds like a great idea <laughs> like why would you do that but you did it yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. And but then there are these moments in it that are like, they seem like they're from another show, and I think I'm a little less on board with those. Like things that it almost feel like the people who did the show were given notes, make it a bit more Family Guy esque. So there's like right. weird recurring jokes of like a, the talking ladybug. Do you remember that? That would keep yeah, showing up. And I think that's just like the gym so- teacher. Like his whole character uh, seems like it sort of it more belongs to maybe another cartoon universe. Yeah, I think maybe they're just, yeah, like you said, I can't, it's one of those things, like, if you're frying as much, you're doing as much as you are, like, they're clearly, because there's lots of, like, uh, breaking the fourth wall, and yeah, for some people that will probably be, like, their favourite bit is the weird little ladybug that says, like, I'm in the car now. Yeah. Yeah, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but it, it is kind of just, like, I think it's just to sort of add that extra layer of, like, what the f*** is happening? You know what it probably is? It's probably less make it more like Family Guy. It's probably more like make it more like Rick and Morty. Yeah. Because they do that a lot. Yeah, Yeah. I was going to say, it's a lot like the weird, like, through lines of Rick and Morty that don't mean anything and don't actually relate to anything, but you're just like... It's like the episode of the, like, the interdimensional cable. Where it's like, I'm Anson Azize Johnson, kind of thing. Or the the obsession with the McDonald's Mulan sauce. Yeah. Which, oh, that sure went well for McDonald's. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder how well they're going to translate into toys, because that's going to happen. You reckon? Yeah, I'm not sure I would want a big mouth toy. They're kind well, of I'm, I'm not, they're very weird design style. I'm not wild about the designs. What's really jarring is the eyes. They have irises. Sometimes I do just notice that I've zoned off into looking at their irises, mm. because the way they've done it is that, depending on the colour of the eye, they'll start with the dark, a dark colour and go all the way around to a light colour. <laughs> like a spin wheel of blue or a spin wheel of brown. And I find it really fascinating. I'm like, what a pain in the ass this must have been to colour in. What a boringly annoying detail to have added to every f***ing character. I don't think they have to do it that often, though. They probably just need to do it once for each character and then just change the... Oh, yeah, maybe they just move it, like, if they're looking... I think they're drawing a different iris each frame of animation. That would be really f***ing annoying, though, huh? It would. It would. Annoying. Yes. So that's something in TV series form that actually deals with sex that actually kind of works. It's sort of successful, I think, I for the time being. I think that should be our throughway, like as throughway, a throughway, 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 like our thing that carries on episodically. Okay. 
the bridge between episodes. What would be? Big Mouth. Okay. Except we've watched it all now, so... But Yeah, we can't really. we already binged the whole thing, so... We'll talk about it again next time. Maybe we can get the people who did it on <gasps> yeah. it. Probably not the main people. We'll get, like, someone who worked in... We'll get the guy who coloured in the eyes, probably. Yeah. <laughs> it was f***ing annoying! <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you, man! Well, in the meantime, as far as who we're talking to today, one of the nice things about this Big Mouth show that it kind of goes into is it's a sort of... I think in this sort of, like, current climate of, like, things being over-sexualized and the notion of what's sexually appropriate behavior, a lot of stuff has been thrown into a blender and kind of whirled around, and I think people are kind of questioning everything, because it turns out everything that guys have been told by their older brothers or possibly fathers or uncles or whatever about how to court the ladies... Um, has actually been making ladies really, really uncomfortable <laughs> for decades. And so we're actually, and I was sort of, I feel a certain relief and validation that I was never really one of those guys. But I as think an. It was helped massively if because you were raised predominantly by women. Like you had an older sister and your mum's quite vocal about that kind of stuff. I actually think and your dad is not a creep. I would say it's 90%. The way my dad is around women. Yeah, true. Your dad's very, very respectful. It's very similar to me in terms of, like, a lot more women friends than guy friends. Having a sister helps enormously, I think, if you're a kid growing up. But a sister that you like as well. Yeah. I think if you're a guy that has a sister that either is a bitch to you all the time, or it's the other way around, like, you tend to be very... If you're a brother who's the older brother in the sibling (coughs) relationship... Yeah. You tend to be like overly protective, maybe. Yeah. But but then you know it's it's what some people hate, some people really like, and I definitely think it's good to have something like a TV show, for example, that has potentially a big audience to kind of lay down some ideas of you know what's good behavior and what's not so good behavior, different ideas of sex and body positivity when you're ready for sex, that kind of thing, and inhibitions and things like that. I think also the interesting thing with the kind of like like imaginary friend kind of situation that the uh, period monster or the hormone monster represents, it's sort of the one thing that normally whenever they've done shows which have like shown the kind of cycle of becoming an adult from being a child and stuff is that they don't really focus in on the remorse or the reasons or the unreasons for why people say or do the things they do to one another when they're figuring stuff out. And I think that's quite, that's like a step forward from what we would have seen 10, even five years ago. Yeah. Is that it's not just, he said this and this was wrong because, you know, it made her feel bad. And then that's how that ended. It's like, it made her feel bad because of this. And then she res- she responded by doing this. But that was also not right to do. And she knows that. And he knows that. But it's still, they're still feeling bad, but. Uh, because you sort of see it from the audience point of view, you understand that, you know, they're both being governed by something completely bigger than themselves and unruly, and they're still trying to figure out their own feelings on situations. And also how much of, for guys, it's governed by what they think they should be doing, Mm. rather than actually what they want to do. Yeah. And that, I think, kind of brings us, uh, sort of to the guest in this episode in terms of like the subject of his film the expectations of how to behave and uh, the fear of how you'll be perceived doing things you want to do uh, and a film that we talked about I think in the first season of this podcast 
so it has come up before it's called Tabuk and it's from the Netherlands and uh, it's a lovely film it's quite short and it's just a film about a woman in a bookshop perusing and finding the you know coming across various books all of them a little bit potentially scintillating to the derision or faux horror of her fellow bookshop patrons and then uh, it gets to a point where she sort of comes across one book in particular that has particular resonance with her like she responds to it like oh okay i'm 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 pretty up for this and she kind of works through those inhibitions and just says to everyone else be damned kind of thing it's a nice little simple idea of working through that sort of fear of you know what people what's such and such gonna think who are what are they gonna say that kind of thing and just working through that and just being yourself and owning it uh so i thought it was a very sort of positive film in that respect i think you quite liked it also yes it's very cute uh, it's produced, I think, or had certainly some involvement uh, from our friend Tundi, who does the Click Festival in Amsterdam. It's directed by a guy called Dario Van Vrie. It came out online on October 10th. To coincide, I'm informed by this email, with International Face Your Fears Day. Appropriately enough. I didn't it's know that was a thing. Day. Um, maybe that's what you mean. Maybe they're synonymous. Um, it can be multiple things for multiple people. It's like yesterday was cheese day. Why not? I don't understand the day thing. Like everything has a day. And a, I think last week was International Toast Day. Who gives a shit about toast? You know when uh, International Animation Day is? Nope, and I don't care. It's on my birthday. That's f***ing weird. A little bit. I think that's why. Why is it on the 28th of October? What a weird time. Oh, you know my birthday. Yeah, I should do. I had to answer it. It's one of the wedding questions. Yeah. So, Dario Van Vrie, uh, he's an animation teacher at the Willem de Kooning Academy and co-founder of the Click Amsterdam Animation Festival. So, it's a lovely film. As we did talk about it in the previous episode, I don't think we need to go through it all again but it's out now it's online check it out tabook in the meantime shall we hear from dario van vrie yeah right on i always wanted to become a, a comic artist and uh I, I did draw a lot of course and uh, but i wasn't really good at drawing the same character every time the same way as they obviously do in in the comics so i decided if i become an animator or at least if i go study animation i'll be forced to draw the same character the same thing over and over again so it definitely will become better at that they discovered the power of movement and that is that is actually something that i can express myself uh even you know better with and then still images so and i stayed with animation I, st- I am from amsterdam and i studied in belgium in a very sort of traditional school and um Later, uh, I moved back to Amsterdam after my studies and um, did an internship in a studio. And then I started an animation festival in Amsterdam. After doing that for five years, I, I had to make a choice whether I wanted to be a like, festival director or going back to making films again. And I had to, I had to choose because you know, it's impossible to do both 100%. Uh, but I choose uh, to go, go back to filmmaking. And now we're here. So the the animation festival that was Click, right? That's right. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so was that how you met Tundi? Uh, yeah, Tundi started out as an intern at Click in 2010. Uh, I think she was 17 years old then. And um, so there was the third year or the fourth fourth edition of the festival, 
seven, eight, nine, yeah, the fourth edition. Yeah, so, so that's how we met, but it was already from the start clear that she was a very, uh, very responsible yeah, person who takes a lot of initiative and, and uh, sees the whole picture. And it's really special for, uh, for someone of that age, I think. And um, she finished her studies and then um, she became producer at uh, Studio Pupil. So yeah, we get to sort of talk a bit about uh, what Studio Pupil does and um, your specific role mm-hmm. within it and uh, how you and Tundi and the others work together. What your working dynamic is. Do you generally direct all the stuff that comes through? Yeah, I, I do direct a lot, but not everything. Uh, we do share uh, the direction load you know, with a, with a sort of a pool of directors. But I do, um, most of the time, I do some kind of creative sort of consultancy, so to say. That So I, I, I direct the directors, so to say, or I, I check what they do and, 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 and advise and uh, see that the uh, overall quality level is, uh, is uh, you know, what our, our standard of work is. So that it's not that often anymore more that I do sort of a full direction on things. Mostly it's a part of a production. So say maybe the script or, or the design part or most of the time the storyboard. That's that's because that's where all the you know the cinematic decisions are uh, are made most of the time. But um, after more often than often I just leave the you know, you know like ninety percent of the process to external directors and just give them a little bit of advice here and there. So I can focus more on, you know, the business part of, of running the studio and the development and also on free projects like an next film or a development of a series. So that's how we sort of manage it now. Cool. So before to book, had you directed any other independent shorts? Well, no, it is, this is officially is my debut, mm-hmm. uh, 10 years after I graduated from, uh, from Art Academy. But of course, I did loads and loads of assignment work, but not like a personal film. The, the previous personal film I made was, uh, was my graduation film. Uh, so that was a was very <laughs> interesting experience because you know when you're working uh, uh, when it's a commissioned film you always have these boundaries you're, you're, and you can always say you know if it turns out to be not so good the, this i can always blame the client <laughs> so but you can't do that with your with your own films but i did give a lot of i didn't approach it as a as like a you know a classical animated auteurs film where the director does nearly everything himself or herself i made the animatic and from that point on everything you see on the screen is made by other people i uh, i also did this, the the cinematographics of course and shot the backgrounds but it built uh, the background this approach i think was for some people very odd because they they think okay so this is your your debut film but you let you leave a lot of creative uh, responsibility with other people. So why do you why do you do it like that? Why don't you take more control of it yourself? Uh, you know, to bring a team together. That's also one of the things that you need to do when you organize a festival, of course. So that's something I had experience with. So I thought, why not just make a film that way instead of uh, you know doing it all myself? And 
you know, looking back, I think it, it did work, but I was a bit frustrated at the end of the process where I couldn't step in and um, just tweak a little bit and, you know, give the finishing touch because I couldn't, you know, I, I coun't draw the style because I it was I didn't ex uh, exercise it. So yeah, that that was a that was that was the downside of it. So after it, I did feel like okay, now next film I'm gonna make my next uh, personal film. I do wanna, you know, do have more personal control over it. For me, I don't think I could ever do just one way of working. I think that would not, uh, yeah, I couldn't do that. It would be too uh, boring for me. It's good to mix it up a bit. Yeah, exactly. Approaches. Yeah, yeah. When it came to the actual story, was it a kind of, did you write a script or was the story kind of a studio team effort or was it like your... Story, well, <laughs> it, 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 yeah, the story did develop from a very simple idea for a situation. Uh, which was there was this woman that wants to buy Fifty Shades of Grey in a bookstore, but she's ashamed to um, she's ashamed of it. So how is she going to solve that problem? Then, then that's basically the idea for the film. And I was, you know, everything else around it is uh, stuff that was sort of built on that later as we went along, as we were doing uh, the storyboards. So it wasn't really a script i think it was uh, more of a it started did start out with an idea but then immediately it became a, a visual story because you can't really put that so so well in a script so i wanted to go to to that visual representation right away also to get a feel of how um how, how the character would uh would go through this 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 ordeal and what would be funny things to show because you know there isn't that much to the story itself. It's it's basically what I what I just said. That that's it. She she goes to the counter. She buys the book. She gets very excited, of course. By the way, uh, the um, the cashier handles it. Uh, but that's really the the that's all there is to the story. It's really um, modeled to this really short format it was supposed to be only two minutes but uh, i found out it's really hard to 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 tell a whole story you know with a with a uh, head and a tail within two minutes i think you, you you need two and a half minutes i think to to do that and and even then it you know it's like i said it's a very simple story it's almost like a like a scene more than a whole you know yeah yeah, story as, as such and that initial idea then that sort of premise of the woman in the store was there anything like real life observations or sort of personal feelings about the way the world looks at those kind of things that determine that subject matter uh yeah definitely i i think that it's a you know it's it's an experience that May that most people have been in, you know, one time or another. That you're 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 in a store, you want to buy something. Maybe it was a, a dirty magazine or some condoms or you know something, or uh, I don't know, a supermarket maybe uh, even. So that I think that's a basic basic experience a lot of people have. But yeah, the the, the specifics of the of the of this of this film, it's quite out of 
autobiographical. I mean, I didn't buy Fifty Shades of Grey, <laughs> but um, something you know, in, 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 you know, the lines of that. So yeah, you know, it's rooted in in real life, I think. Uh, but of course, it's it's exaggerated and very concentrated, the way it's uh, it's shown in the in the film. And production-wise, was it mainly TV paint for the animation? Yeah, the, the character animation is all done in, in TV paint. The backgrounds are paper craft and then shot with dragon frame. And there's even a tiny bit of stop motion in it. The door, there's a door in the store that's, you know, a paper crafted door that I uh, I did animate frame by frame. And then the, um, the books that the characters handle, they were also made in, in, uh, in paper craft and then photographed. And then they were textured on 3D CGI models and animated into the 2D image, which is a process that I'm never going to do again. Hmm. <laughs> it, 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 it sort of got out of hand. It, was, it became very, very technically complicated. So, yeah, that's sort of, I guess, an example of maybe something to not incorporate into the next project, like you're saying, doing things differently. Oh, yes. It's good to sort of learn what works and what doesn't. Or what's sort of needlessly labor intensive, I suppose. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, and and it's uh, it's a, I think it's a classic uh, sort of uh, fault or or thing that happens when with so much you know emphasis on um, you know the way it's executed and um, that you sort of lo- maybe lose touch with with the with the film itself in a way. And also, yeah, like I said, because the team was quite big, everybody else wants their part to be very, you know, good. So everybody's pushing for their bits. Mm. Everybody's pulling for, yeah, to get more, uh, to get more out of it, which is also really cool. And uh, and that's also really great about the process and everybody really caring about what they're doing. So the day of it coming out was um, Face Your Fears Day. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Um, which I guess is sort of fitting. Was that coincidence or was that sort of an intentional part of the launch strategy? Uh, yeah, that, that was that was intentional. That's oh. why we picked uh, the 10th of October, yeah. But it's not like uh, we waited half a year uh, just for the Fisher Fierce days. It was more like, mm. oh, we want to do it somewhere around, you know, this time of year. So let's pick some day that is uh, appropriate. So that was Dario Van Vrie, the director of Tabuk. And the film is available now online. You can visit studiopupil.com to see that film and various other projects by the studio. Uh, and to see more of his own work, visit dariovanvrie.nl. So until the last, I believe, episode in the season of Intimate Animation, I've been Ben Mitchell. I've been Laura Beth Cowley. We'll see you again soon. Ta-ra. Bye-bye.